Coming to you live and in color from the sun deck of the Nipty Practice Tip Summer Lounge, welcome to this edition of the Nipty Practice Tips. It is a beautiful day here in Albany, and we hope to have many more of these as our summer begins. Today, we're going to be speaking about five not-so-easy pieces of business in dealing with predicate felony sentencing. So let's begin. Number one, in determining if a defendant is a predicate felony offender, the defendant must have been sentenced on the first felony, or predicate, before committing the second felony for purposes of the enhanced sentencing guidelines that apply when sentencing a person as a predicate felony offender. Number two, a plea bargain cannot include the people and or the court waiving a defendant's predicate felony status. If the defendant has a previous felony conviction within the past 10 years, as calculated by the statutory rules, and he or she pleads guilty to a felony found in the penal law, then he or she must be sentenced according to the predicate felony statutes. It is improper for either the court or the people to intentionally overlook the previous conviction for the purposes of plea bargaining. The most significant decision in this area is People v. Scarborough, a 1985 Court of Appeals decision. Also of interest is People v. Alsequare, a First Department decision from 2007. In this case, the defendant was resentenced pursuant to the new drug sentencing laws, and for the first time, the people filed a predicate felony statement, having not done so at the original sentencing. The court wrote, Penal Law 70.713b requires enhanced sentencing for second felony drug offenders who have been adjudicated as such pursuant to Section 400.21 of the Criminal Procedure Law. The mandatory nature of these sentencing provisions was triggered by the defendant's 1997 conviction. CPL 400.21 Subdivision 2 required the people to file a predicate felony statement with the court prior to sentencing, and their failure to do at the original sentencing proceeding is irrelevant, and they cited People v. Scarborough. If the defendant has multiple felony convictions and the people file a predicate felony statement which results in a finding that the felony enumerated in that form is outside the 10-year period, the people are still permitted to file a subsequent predicate felony statement based on one of the defendant's other convictions. See the case of People v. Sipes, a First Department case from 2013 where leave to appeal was denied by the Court of Appeals. Number three, in order to be sentenced as a predicate felony offender, the present or second felony must be one found in the penal law. Therefore, for example, a defendant convicted of a vehicle and traffic law felony will be sentenced according to the rules that apply to a first-time felony offender. See Penal Law 70.06. Number four, and I've got a little backstage information for you. This is about the fifth time I'm recording this one. Correctly calculating the 10-year time period between the first conviction and the commission of the second felony that removes the defendant's predicate felony status, found in Penal Law 70.06, 4, 5, and 6. Once a defendant can point to a period in excess of 10 years in which she or he was not incarcerated between his or her first felony conviction and the commission of the present felony for which she has been convicted, he or she will not be sentenced as a predicate felony offender. Now, while the second felony is being litigated, 
the time that the defendant spends incarcerated before the trial or plea, as well as the post-conviction time before the sentences imposed on the present conviction, are not included for the defendant's benefit in calculating that 10-year period. The defendant, of course, gets credit for any pre-conviction time spent incarcerated towards his or her sentence in terms of the time he or she must actually spend incarcerated. But for purposes of calculating the 10-year period in which the defendant must not have been incarcerated, any of this pre-trial time in which he or she is incarcerated is not calculated for the defendant's benefit. Number four, when a claimed predicate felony is from another jurisdiction, the conviction the people claim serves as the predicate felony or first conviction can come from other chapters of the Consolidated Laws of New York, not just the penal law, as well as from other jurisdictions. Crimes from other jurisdictions must, as written, be the equivalent to a felony in New York. Additionally, the authorized sentence for the crime must be in excess of one year in the other jurisdiction as well as for the equivalent statute in New York, although such a sentence needs not to have been imposed. The way to determine if the conviction under the foreign statute would constitute a felony conviction in New York State is a comparison of the elements of the New York statute with that of the foreign jurisdiction. If the foreign statute contains different sections which conform with the New York felony, but also has sections which would not be a felony in New York, there may be the need to examine the actual accusatory instrument upon which the plea or conviction was had in the foreign jurisdiction to determine under which section of that statute the defendant was convicted and sentenced. Determining whether an out-of-state conviction may serve as the basis for predicate felony sentencing in New York can at times be quite difficult. Please see the case of People v. Youssef, a 2012 Court of Appeals decision. In this case, the court wrote, among many other things, an out-of-state felony conviction qualifies as a predicate felony under New York sentencing statutes only if it is for a crime whose elements are equivalent to those of a New York felony. As a general rule, the court's inquiry is limited to a comparison of the crime's elements as they are respectively defined in the foreign and New York penal statutes. When a statute-to-statute comparison reveals differences in the elements such that it is possible to violate the foreign statute without engaging in conduct that is a felony in New York, the foreign statute may not serve as a predicate felony basis. The court goes on to say, as an exception to this, what they describe as the OLA rule, a sentencing court may go beyond the statute and scrutinize the accusatory instrument in the foreign jurisdiction because the statute renders criminal not one act but several acts which, if committed in New York, in some cases would be felonies and in other cases would not. Number five, the revocation of a sentence of probation and the subsequent imposition of an incarceratory sentence is not an annulment of the first sentence. First of all, for purposes of counting back the 10-year period, the date of the original sentence of probation controls, not the date of the new incarceratory sentence. Secondly, if the defendant commits a second felony after being sentenced to probation on the first felony, and while that new case is pending, the defendant is resentenced to a period of incarceration for violating probation on the first case, 
What happens to the defendant's predicate felony status? Does the new date of sentencing count, which would make him not a predicate felon, or does the old one remain, which would then make the defendant a predicate felon? Well, the answer to this is, for purposes of determining if the defendant is a predicate felony offender, the date of the original sentencing on the first case would still be the sentencing date for determining if the defendant is a predicate felony offender when he or she is sentenced on the second case. As the court wrote in People v. Thompson, a 2016 Court of Appeals decision, put differently, to revoke a penalty of probation does not equate to annulling a sentence. Bottom line, the defendant would still be a predicate felony offender when he or she was sentenced on the new case. There's a similar case with similar issues and a similar outcome. The case is People v. Boyer, a 2013 Court of Appeals case. And in Boyer, the court addressed the issue that was prevalent back at that time when post-release supervision first became part of the sentencing scheme as opposed to parole. Now, many of the courts, because of the change in the sentencing scheme, omitted discussing with the defendant that he or she was going to be given a period of post-release supervision. Thus, many of the pleas that were taken were found to be improperly taken. So the question then became, when there was a resentencing done, what date would control? The date of the original plea or the date of the resentencing? In Boyer, the Court of Appeals determined the date of sentence for a defendant's prior conviction is the original date on which the defendant received a lawful prison term upon a valid conviction for that prior crime, regardless of whether the defendant or the government seeks resentencing on that conviction to correct the error described in People v. Sparber, which was the case that determined it was, in fact, error to have omitted that part of the allocution of the defendant directing his or her attention to the post-release supervision component of that sentence. Wait a second. We do have one more bonus rule for you to remember. A defendant who takes an Alford plea is considered to be a predicate felony offender for any future sentencing on a felony conviction that meets the other required rules for such sentencing. Please see the case of People v. Geyer, a Fourth Department case from 1988. We hope that these five or six points of interest will be helpful to you in dealing with sentencing. Please, as always, with any issues that you have, be sure to contact us because often these serve as the basis for both our practice tips and for our other memos. As always, our thanks to our crack producer and man who's looking forward to Syracuse just around the corner, Jonathan Marconi Crispino. To all of you out there, be well, enjoy our summer, and stay ready, my friends. 